Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added, added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that they can even be carried out to the, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this had what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, by, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Glamiel a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this is the plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will be not able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when, he had called, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. I know you're all busy this time of the year, getting ready for Christmas and everything. It's a great time of the year. You know, I was thinking this week as I was preparing for this message, and I remembered that I think the very first time that I can remember being, you know, kind of mocked and made fun of for being a Christian was when I was in junior high. I used to walk 
on a regular basis about a mile and a half to Woodstock Park in Jacksonville, and I would play basketball, and I would play for hours, right, and then walk home sometimes a little too late and get in trouble with mom and dad. But I remember one time in junior high, I was playing basketball, and after the game, uh, a group of teenage guys began to pick on one of my teammates. <clears throat> and he was a good kid and nice guy, and they were bullying him, and they were older. And, uh, and so, of course, I was like 6'5 in seventh grade, so I was kind of big. And so I stepped in to help my friend, and in the process of doing that, as I was calling those guys out, I, I said, we shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. We should, like Jesus says, we should treat one another as we would want to be treated. I quoted the golden rule to them which was not the best idea in the world, right? Uh, you know, the good news was is that they stopped picking on him. The bad news is they turned all of their energy towards me, and it was not a fun situation at all. You know, not only did it get physical, it was all the taunts of being a holy roller and a Jesus jerk and, and all these other things that happened with those young men. Uh, have you ever had that happen in some way to you? You know, maybe been mocked? for what you believe. Maybe it's a family member or a coworker who kind of laughs at you and picks at you because of your faith and, and what you believe about Jesus. It's never pleasant. Uh, it doesn't feel good at all. And uh, it hurts, especially when we, in the process of mocking us, they blaspheme our Lord, right? And that even hurts more. Well, in our text this morning, the resistance to the apostles, to the early church, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's ramping up. The persecution, the opposition is becoming more real to this church. It's gradual, right? It's very gradual, but it's also very real. Something that I actually I think we can relate to in 21st century America as Christians, maybe more so than our ancestors over the past centuries who were Christians in our nation as we begin to see this becoming more and more of our own reality. So, so how did they respond to that kind of resistance and opposition? What we do not want to do in our response to resistance is to do anything that undermines the very message, the gospel that we proclaim to believe. And so it's important as we look at the early church, as they face growing opposition, we learn from that, that response because they did it in such a way that the gospel was not weakened, it was not undermined. Instead, it was actually furthered. And through that opposition and their response to that opposition and resistance, the kingdom of God grew more and more. So as we come to this passage this morning, it's a long passage of Scripture. We're going to break it down into three categories. We're going to look first at the gospel authenticated, and then we will see the gospel opposed, and finally we'll close out this morning with the gospel preeminent. So in verse 12, we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. That was the portion of the temple, the large portion where they would gather and the apostles would preach and teach. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So, you know, the passage goes on to talk about how the apostles were healing people and casting out demons. In fact, just the very shadow of the apostles falling on people who were sick or diseased or handicapped, just that shadow was healing them. Why don't we see that today? 
Why did God give them that kind of miraculous power? What is the purpose behind the miraculous power of the apostles? This this actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And if you want to understand why God gave these men that kind of miraculous power, it's kind of described just in one word, authentication. Authentication. Uh, Back in 1 Kings, for example, we see Elijah the prophet, right? He would stay from time to time at a home where a widow and her son was. And one day when he comes to stay in their home as he's traveling, the son is dead. The, The widow, the mother is just overcome with grief. And Elijah goes in, he lays on top of the body, he he raises that dead child back to life and brings him to his mother. And the mother, when she sees her son, turns to Elijah and says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Resurrection kind of does that for you, doesn't it? (laughs) It kind of bolsters your credentials in a way, doesn't it? You know, if you think about Jesus and the the gospel of John, the the Pharisees and the different people were always asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? I think he just was asked that question so much. He, He finally one day says, listen, I told you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me. In other words, you're asking if I'm the Messiah, look at the signs and the miracles, all the things that have been happening before you. That's all you need to know, that I am the Messiah. You know, the Apostle Paul, he tells us that in 1 Corinthians that the the Greeks, they, they needed to be related to through philosophy and wisdom and rhetoric. That's how they were proclaimed, saw the gospel proclaimed, and that's what they gave, uh, you know, credibility to. But to the Jews, they required a sign, right? And this was a common thing. This was part of their heritage for centuries. Later on in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul is having to defend himself to that very church who is doubting him because false teachers have entered into the church and they are, they are casting aspersions and they are denigrating Paul. And they're saying, we're actually the real apostles here, not, not Paul. He's a fake apostle. And so, so Paul begins to defend himself. And this is what he writes. And it's interesting because it helps us understand the role of miracles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. So apparently they were a lot like our kids. But anyway, he, uh, <laughs> he says, I, don't, I shouldn't have to be doing this. I shouldn't have to be defending myself. It's foolish for me to have to do this, but nevertheless, I am. And then he goes on in verse 12, the things that mark an apostle, you say I'm not an apostle. These super apostles, and it's a sarcastic term, are saying I'm not the real deal. Oh yeah? Well, how about this? The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you by him with great perseverance. Have these false teachers done that? No, they haven't. I have. Which one of us is actually the apostle? So the reason, the purpose behind this miraculous power was to authenticate the messenger of God and the message of God. That's why the power was given. Now, how about the nature of that miraculous power? In our society today, and really for about the last 120 years, Christianity has been plagued by a great misunderstanding on what a miracle actually is, okay? We go to Publix, the parking lot is full, 
We pray, Lord, please give me a parking spot so I don't have to walk so far. One opens up right by the front. It's a miracle. He opened up a spot. You know, we've trivialized the word miracle. You know, uh, uh, some of you guys remember Pat Boone. You remember Pat Boone? Many of you guys, the older people are shaking your head. Yeah, Pat Boone. He, he was part of the charismatic movement as an entertainer, a Christian man, great, great guy. But back in the 70s, he wrote a book. I remember this, it was a kind of a, you know, what, what a title. Uh, you need a miracle a day to keep the devil away. You need a miracle a day to keep the devil away. It was not a bestseller, I would point out. This idea that, you know, hey, just miracles are just these common things, and they should just be a part of our everyday life. And if we just simply have enough faith, well, then we'll do miracles greater than the apostles. What's happened in the church today is that we are confusing the providential grace of God with miracles, okay? A miracle, to be clear, a miracle is a supernatural act that creates amazement, wonderment, astonishment in the life of the observer. The act shows that God clearly has invaded our human space and time and history, and there is no other rational, reasonable human explanation for the phenomenon that we currently are seeing and experiencing. There is no other common, rational, reasonable explanation. It is so over, this is God. So in other words, the guy who walks across the stage of the faith healer, right? Because see, church, in, our, in seminaries today, you can actually take classes to learn how to do miracles, okay? And signs and wonders. There's whole seminaries that are, are built around this, and it's mostly associated, unfortunately, with the charismatic movement, and it breeds abuses. And so the guy comes across the stage, he's had hip pain, he gets smacked in the head, voila, I have no more hip pain. I've been healed. Well, maybe. Or maybe it was just psychosomatic. Or maybe the Aleve is finally kicking in, right? There's any number of explanations for that, okay? However, if we ever have somebody, let's just say, they've been suffering with multiple uh, muscular dystrophy all their life, their spine is all twisted, their limbs are all twisted, they've been in a wheelchair in bed for decades, everybody in the church knows it, you bring that guy across the stage, right? He gets smacked in the head, and before your very eyes, his limbs straighten out, his spine strengthens, he jumps out of the wheelchair, starts running like Usain Bolt, and can jump 10 feet high. That is a miracle. Okay? And we don't see that today. We don't see that today. I've never seen a miracle. Now, have I seen God do things in people's life where I believe there's miraculous power at play? Yeah. I believe when we pray over somebody who's sick and maybe it's cancer and, and they are healed, is it possible that God's miraculous power is what brought that about? Absolutely, but we can't see it and validate it and verify it. It could be that God is simply allowing that chemotherapy and radiation to finally begin to work on that person's cancer. We can't verify it, we can't validate it. It's not so obvious. There are other reasonable, rational explanations for why that healing may have taken place. 
And certainly God works through miraculous ways and he works through normal means of grace. But a miracle is something that is so over the top that you cannot possibly explain it. You're dumbfounded. You're just dumbfounded. Remember the guy at the temple? 40 years he'd been laying there on a mat, crippled. And all of a sudden he's running through the temple. That is a miracle. So when you talk about miracles, let's understand what was happening in the book of Acts is very different than what we think of as miracles. So that takes us to the scope of this miraculous power, right? God gives that miraculous power to authenticate the message and the messenger, and he also does it to reveal himself. And you see this throughout redemptive history at different times. God, as he communicates and reveals himself to humanity, he does it through a messenger, and that messenger is given great miraculous power. Go back to the Old Testament, first time this happens. The inauguration of the Old Covenant, Moses. Did he have miraculous power? I think part in the Red Sea counts, right? I think striking the rock and water coming out counts. He was told, put your, uh, your, your shepherd's staff down and it'll turn into a snake. Pick it up again and it turns back into the staff. Miraculous things that have no explanation other than that God is at work. And what was God doing through Moses? He was communicating revelation, new revelation to his people. He was showing up in a new way, a different way, so that people would know, I am is the God of the universe, Right? Fast forward a few centuries, the prophets. Now God is speaking through Elijah, Elisha, same thing. Miraculous power given to those men as they proclaim the message to God's people that they needed to hear. Fast forward a few more centuries, Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, a new phase in redemptive history and it's covenant of grace. And what accompanies that new revelation that Jesus and then by extension, the apostles as the foundation of the church, as they give to the people, what accompanies that new revelation? Miraculous powers and abilities. Power that creates wonder and amazement in the minds and eyes of the people and it serves as a sign, signs and wonders, that this dude is telling the truth that he is speaking for God. No way to argue against it. That is what miraculous powers are. And it is, here's the key word, it's transitory. It's transitory, it's temporary. It's not something that we are to look at and say, this is now the norm for Christians in the 21st century. We don't do these things. God has closed the revelation. In former days, Hebrews 1 says, he spoke to the prophets. But now in these last days, through Jesus Christ, and with the closing of the scriptures and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we now have the power of God. It's called the gospel in us through the Holy Spirit. And he works in miraculous ways, but can we call it a miracle like we see in Acts? No, because of what a miracle entails. So there is the gospel authenticated. And then there's the gospel opposed. Verse 22, excuse me, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17. But the high priest rose up 
And all who were with him, that is the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Remember what happened there? They were in prison, and all of a sudden they're not in prison, right? (laughs) And the guards are going, what happened here? And they go right back to Solomon's portico. Isn't it interesting? God delivers them from prison, but then sends them right back so they can be arrested again, right? God doesn't always deliver us in the way we think we want to be delivered, right? And so now they're arrested again. They're brought before the council. When they bring them before the council, the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You know, the religious leaders didn't know what to do with the early church. Remember back in verse 12, they were all together in Solomon's portico. They were preaching. Verse 13 has this interesting phrase, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. What does that mean? In other words, none of the rest of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they're standing on the outskirts watching all of these miracles. They're watching all of these people flocking to the early church, and they're not joining in. They're trying to make up their minds of what's going on. And as the popularity of the early church grew, More and more, the apostles became a threat to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, right? The Pharisees, just to be clear, the Pharisees' opposition and resistance to the gospel was based off of theological reasons. They were the defenders of Judaism. They saw in this teaching of Jesus as Messiah as a threat to their system of belief, okay? The Sadducees were different. Their opposition wasn't based off of theological reasons. It was political reasons. And and what they saw, the threat of the early Christians and church being, is that it was threatening their position within the Roman Empire and within the Roman structure. They were the governing authorities, and they had the power, the influence, the economic connections. In other words, kind of like Washington today, when you threaten the leader's wallets and their stream of income, they start getting really antagonistic, right? When you upset the norm and the apple cart and and affect business and, and power, you get a bullseye on you. And that's what's happening here. Now their opposition is both ironic and irrational at the same time, right? The the irony is in this, excuse me, hold on. The irony, is that they say, you intend to bring this man's blood upon our heads. Uh, Do you forget what you said just a few few months before? At the crucifixion or at the trial of Jesus, when Pilate says to these very same people, he's innocent, why don't I uh, release him and crucify Barabbas? They said, his blood be on us and on our children. So here's a great irony. Now, just a few months later, said, you're trying to bring this guy's blood on. No, you did that yourself, right? It's ironic, it's irrational. Their opposition to Jesus was so intense that they were willing to rewrite their own past history and things that they have said. They were willing to deny the obvious power of God that was right in front of them with the miracles and instead persecute the apostles. And so they bring them in and they ultimately end up beating him. And what's interesting for these apostles is that the conclusion of this, they are not discouraged. They're not discouraged at all. And, and, it, and, and they're actually not surprised by this. 
You see, for them, and as you see throughout the book of Acts, being persecuted, being opposed for your faith meant that you were living as a faithful disciple of Jesus. Uh, we're, we're supposed to expect resistance and opposition. None of us should be surprised when it comes to us, whatever form it takes. We shouldn't be surprised biblically, right? Biblically, John chapter 15, Jesus says, the servant is not greater than the master, and if the world persecutes the master, how much more are they going to resist and oppose and persecute the servant? So biblically, we should not be surprised when we are mocked or we are laughed at or we are disregarded or we are shunned or whatever takes place from those who do not believe in Jesus. Practically, though, it's also very important that we not be surprised by opposition, that we actually be prepared for it, that we anticipate it and we're ready for it and we have an answer for the hope that is within us. Practically, this is important because what you see is that active resistance to our faith, when those types of things occur in our lives, those moments in time can be transformed into wonderful, unique opportunities where we experience the life-changing power of the gospel. It happens in two ways. It happens within us. When we face resistance and opposition and we respond the way the apostles did with the truth of the gospel, our faith is actually refined by that opposition and persecution. This is the testimony of the church through the ages. The Holy Spirit does something in our hearts when we stand up for our Lord and we're strengthened and we're made stronger and more like our Savior. So there's power in that gospel for us in that moment of resistance. But there's also power in the gospel for those who were observing and hearing it. Whether it's the person who is maybe opposing and resisting or those who are around it, as we are prepared for that kind of resistance when we respond in a gospel-centered, graceful way, that is so counterintuitive, right? I mean, when somebody insults you, what's the normal human reaction and response. What do we do? We, we, we insult back, right? If someone hurts us, we hurt back. But you see, the gospel's counterintuitive. What does Jesus say? When someone smites you on one side of his cheek, you let him hit the other cheek, right? You love your enemies. You don't retaliate against them. And so when we are prepared, expecting resistance and opposition, whether it's mild, moderate, severe, and we're prepared for this, and we respond with the winsomeness of the gospel, the Holy Spirit uses that in the life of those who witness it. It becomes one of those validating points for the truth of what we're proclaiming. This has been the case throughout the centuries. Lives have been transformed by, by uh, as Christians responded to persecution in a gospel-oriented way that honored the Lord. You go all the way back to the second century, for example. There's a man, early church father, a theologian by the name of Tertullian. He wrote a book called Apologeticus, which was to Romans and to pagans who were questioning why is Christianity growing so much? Why, why is it growing when all the other philosophical systems are not growing? And so in that book, Tertullian wrote something that has passed down through the ages. He said, we are not a new philosophy. <clears throat> we are a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill of us, the more we are. 
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Great sentence. Read that with me. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And he went on and said, those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, in other words, the reason behind why we're willing to die like this, they join us. He would say, you know, for every one of us who dies, in that moment, two, three, four, or more end up converting to the faith as they see the way we die. You know, this was true 1,900 years ago. This is true even in modern day. You remember that event back in 2015? I think many of us saw the image of 21 Christian men put in orange jumpsuits, ISIS men in masks and black costumes behind them with big knives and swords. And one after the other, they went down the beach and they beheaded and killed these Christian men. Listen to this from the voice of the martyrs about this event and about this picture in particular. Following the martyrdom of Coptic Christian men by the Libyan Islamic State militants in February 2015, the names of 21 of the martyrs were widely shared. The martyrs were kidnapped from Sirte, Libya, where they were working. Initially, it was believed that all the men were killed for their faith, were from small villages in Egypt. However, the name and background of one of those killed, a black man, was unknown. Matthew Ayarga was soon identified by friends after being recognized in video footage of his killing. According to the Canadian news, Matthew was from Chad. Matthew had gone missing in January 2015, captured by one of the radical groups in Libya who have kidnapped hundreds, both Muslim and Christian. The video made public on February 15th shows each of the men dressed in the orange jumpsuits kneeling on a beach with their black-clothed executioners standing behind them. Each one is systematically beheaded. And the video clearly shows many of the men praying Lord Jesus Christ in their final moments. According to reports, Matthew was not a Christian. However, when moments before his death, the ISIS extremists demanded that he follow and convert to Islam, Matthew turned them down. After witnessing the immense faith of the Egyptian believers, he decided to become a follower of Christ. On camera, one of the terrorists asked Matthew, do you reject Christ? And he responded to them, their God is my God. And he became one of the 21 men laying down their lives for their faith in Christ. Reminds me of what happened in 320 AD when 40 believers, 40 men in the persecution of the emperor was taken to Sebaste to a frozen lake and stripped naked and to be executed through freezing to death. One of the 40 apostatized, recanted his faith and left the centurion in charge of the troops, Eutychus, seeing the, the faith of those 39 praying and proclaiming the gospel and singing hymns, took off his clothes and walked out on the ice and joined them and died professing Jesus Christ as his Savior. There's great power in responding to opposition through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. One final thought this morning the gospel's preeminent. This is, this is where it gets very practical for us. The gospel preeminent. You look in verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Practically speaking, the preeminence of the gospel must characterize the totality of our lives. This means 
that when we face opposition, whether it be from our employers or from the governing authorities or family members, our allegiance is first to Jesus, even to the point of civil disobedience. We must obey God rather than man. Gospel preeminence means living counterculturally and accepting that abuse and even the injustice of systems, but doing so in a gospel-centered way. Being um, centered and having the gospel preeminent in the totality of our lives means that we have a worldview, a paradigm, that when we face that kind of opposition, we don't lash back, we don't turn into radicals and revolutionaries. Instead, we submit, but we don't shut up. We don't shut up. We continue to proclaim the gospel. Gospel preeminence means it's, it characterizes the totality of our lives and it characterizes the content of our defense of our faith. As you read verses 30 to 32, Peter took that opportunity in the apostles to proclaim once again the truth of Jesus Christ, the cross, sin, the opportunity to be forgiven, which is for all of us who are even here today where we can be forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross as sinners. So gospel preeminence means that it's preeminent in the defense of our faith, and it means that it's preeminent in the mission of our church. Every day, verse 42 says, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord our mission of our church is what? Gospel restoration. Bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. We're not bringing social programs. We're bringing the life-changing power of Jesus Christ to people. This is gospel preeminence. And as we pray, even this morning, as we're going to enter into a time of prayer about the future of our church, understand as we ask God for wisdom about where we go and how we conduct ourselves as a church and ministries that we do to reach the lost, what we're praying for is wisdom about the methodology. We're not praying for wisdom about the message. We already got that part, the gospel now the question is, how do we bring it to our city in a way that is effective and powerful and that God uses for the redemption of our fellow man? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for men like Matthew Aguirre and the countless thousands of people every year who were imprisoned, who were beaten, who were killed, Lord, we just pause this morning as we transition to a time of prayer in our church and we want to lift up our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for their faith in ways so much more horribly than ours. Father, forgive us for feeling pity for ourselves in America when what we face is just infinitesimally small compared to others. Lord, we pray that you would build your church in those nations where nations are worshiping Allah or where nations are worshiping the state, or nations that are worshiping Buddha, nations that are agnostic and atheistic and they worship themselves. Father, would you work powerfully through your people in those nations? Would you grow your church by bringing more and more men and women and children from around the globe into your kingdom? Use us, Lord, in our own backyard in the same way. 
for your glory and for the good of those who you called even before the foundations of the world were created. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.